0: Well, uh, good morning everyone. Uh, It's good to be uh, back with you again this morning. Uh, in Carrickfergus. I was greatly uh, encouraged by the the guy who was going out to children's church and shouting no. I thought uh, there's a man who's hungry, uh, hungry, hungry for the sermon. So that's uh, that's great. So I'm glad you've uh, remained behind. And if I could encourage you uh, to turn uh, with me uh, to that uh, section uh, that we read together in Galatians chapter 5. for as long as I can uh, remember. Uh, My wife, uh, Elizabeth, uh, has made lists. Uh, Every new project uh, in her life and our family life has produced lists. Uh, Everything that needs to be done is on a list somewhere. Uh, And something starts to happen, I say, I feel a list coming on. Uh, And it reflects her ability to be uh, super uh, organized, uh, both for herself and uh, for the rest of us. On the other hand, by nature, I am not a list person. Uh, A tutor, uh, when I was at university, told me he didn't need to write things down. If they were important enough, he would remember them. Um, That's kind of my philosophy uh, as well, Uh, and it's a great philosophy uh, until you start forgetting things uh, that are uh, important, and then your wife says, "Why didn't you make a list?" Uh, So, um, well, certainly, uh, if you're a list person, uh, you will identify with the Apostle Paul, who is very much a list person. Uh, If you read through his letters, they contain all kinds of different lists. And when we come again this morning to Galatians chapter 5, we find two very important lists uh, that he made. Now previously, uh, when I was here a couple of weeks ago, we noted how uh, Paul's letter uh, to the Galatians is divided into two uh, parts. The first part of the letter, chapters 1 through to 4, deal with what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Paul explains that a Christian is someone who enjoys a new status in God's sight. Through faith, we are justified as by grace God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. It's a legal verdict uh, that cannot and will not be overturned. There's nothing we can do that will forfeit that verdict. There's nothing that we can do that will enhance that verdict. But then in chapter 5 and verse 2, Paul then begins to explain how a Christian not only receives a new status, but they also receive a new nature. Uh, Through the miracle of God's grace, we are born again uh, through the Holy Spirit. We're made holy as God sets us apart for Himself, and He begins a new process of reconstruction in our lives. As through the, the Holy Spirit, He gradually transforms us uh, into the image and the likeness of His Son. And this process continues throughout our, our Christian life until at last we are, we are glorified. Until at last we, we go to be with God. When we at last see Jesus as He is. For we are made like Him. Now, consequently, uh, Paul goes on then in Galatians chapter 5 to urge his readers in verse 16, and saw so again in verse 25, to live by the Spirit or to, to keep in step with the Spirit. So, a Christian is someone who uh, now lives life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, it is their, their aim in life to, to stay aligned uh, with what God is doing in their life. And it is this section of the the letter that we've been thinking about uh, together, what it means to live by the Spirit, what it means to keep in step with the Spirit, what it means to keep uh, aligned with with the work that God is doing in our lives when He has made us new. Uh, And we noted last time that although a a Christian has undergone this powerful change and the the old sinful nature is, is defeated, it's not yet removed. And so as the Christian seeks to live by the Holy Spirit, and they discover this inner conflict that we all know. Whereas as Paul writes in verse 17, that we do not do what we want. And yes, we, we want to keep in step with the Spirit. But we, have, we have this ongoing struggle where we don't always do what we want to do. And as Paul continues to to address this theme of living by the Spirit and the the struggle that we find ourselves engaged in, uh, he draws up two lists, uh, beginning in verse 19. Uh, And the first of these that runs from verse 19 through to verse 21 is a warning against indulging the sinful nature. Paul draws up a list of the acts associated with the old sinful nature. You'll see if you look at verse 19, he prefaces this by saying, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. In other words, how life lived under the rule of the sinful nature works itself out. He's saying it's not hard to see. And he's making that same point that Jesus so often made himself that what we are in the inside has that outward manifestation that cannot ultimately be hidden. And so he draws up this list consisting of 15 acts that are the product of a life governed by the sinful nature. However, verse 21, he tells us that although these 15 acts are here, the list is not exhaustive. And he adds, verse 21, and the like, and the like. So he's saying these are the things that are typical of the sinful nature. Uh, and while the list might initially appear to us as being composed in quite a random manner, it is in fact divided into four types of sin. And the first of these that we might identify are sexual sins, verse 19. Uh, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Now, with all of these uh, terms, there's some breadth of meaning that's reflected uh, in our various English translations. So if you have a, a translation this morning that's a little bit uh, different from the NIV, you might find it a slightly different uh, translation. And again, as I say, that reflects the fact that there is a breadth of meaning uh, in, these, in these terms. these terms. Sexual immorality is the translation of the Greek word pornia, uh, the root, obviously, of our word pornography, and it covers all kinds of illicit sexual behavior. The term impurity can include the idea of unnatural vice, in other words, sexual acts that go against Nature debauchery uh, really includes those acts that offend public decently, decency, and are people who openly flaunt their sexual misconduct, and they call it good. But again, we need to understand that, that Paul's not simply writing about three particular sexual sins but really he's talking about all kinds of sexual sin. This is not a list to be dismissed by saying, well, you know, I'm not troubled by that. I I have no bother with that. It's not on the list. Well, Paul says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. So again, this morning, let's not skirt around the obvious because it's not on the list. A quick rule of thumb is, if your sexual behavior troubles your conscience, well, that's usually because it's wrong, because that's what your conscience does. It's there to trouble you, to unsettle you. So, first of all, there are sexual sins, and secondly, in verse 20, there are religious sins, idolatry and witchcraft. And Paul here talks about the worship of idols, or it could be translated foreign gods, so in other words the, the person who has become a Christian has broken with other gods. They have nothing in common with other faiths because they've turned away from all false forms of worship and then they've turned to serve the living and the true God exclusively. They've also broken with idols. And of course not all idols are carved from wood and sit in the corner. Idolatry is sometimes defined as a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. So, if something or someone other than God is first in our lives, well, that means that person or that thing has become an idol to us. And our idols in the 21st century, as I say, don't always sit on the corner and they're always carved by wood, but they include such things as the idols that we've made of success, materialism, pleasure, sex, fame, and so we could go on. So, a Christian has abandoned idolatry. A Christian has also abandoned witchcraft. Again, living in the 21st century in Northern Ireland, we might think, well, that's pretty obvious, and we have nothing to do with that. But again, in the ancient world, the term witchcraft that's used here is the word pharmacia, pharmacia. Obviously, the root of our word, pharmacy. A person turned to witchcraft for, for healing. And of course, there remain many forms of healing out there that are underpinned by all kinds of false religious ideas, all kinds of false spirituality. You think of things like Chinese medicine rooted in that ancient worldview we think of all those kind of cod New Age remedies, come and rub this shiny stone and all your illnesses will be gone and so forth. People also turned to witchcraft to procure an abortion. They relied on the witch's potion to perform the act. And so, there's an underlying warning here against abortion. Also, witchcraft involved superstition. I believe that unseen spiritual forces and powers were were shaping a person's life, shaping their their destiny. And so people were using fortune-telling. People were using astrology, these kinds of practices. So again, Paul says idolatry and witchcraft, but we shouldn't be, be too restrictive about what Paul is saying here. The third group of sins, then, in verses 20 and 21, are relational sins. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, faction, and envy. Now, on one level, of course, Paul is talking about these acts of the sinful nature in a very general way. Wherever we witness such things, we we see the outworking of the the sinful nature. Of course, we often see these things in the world of politics— And we wonder how the politicians can ever mend our country when they they can't even agree amongst themselves. But with these relational sins, Paul is actually heading much closer to home and warning these Galatian Christians that these things have no place in the church. And this is what the, the Judaizers who troubled the Galatian churches had introduced to them, These people who came along and insisted if you were going to be a Christian, well, you needed to obey the Jewish food laws, you needed to be uh, circumcised, and so on and so on. And they brought these new laws into the church, and they created division. But the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace that is Paul's gospel, brings people together because we recognize in one another that we're all unworthy sinners, we're all relying upon God's grace. But the type of law-keeping, the type of legalism that these people had introduced into the church is that type of legalism wants to divide, wants to cut off people who haven't attained their self-appointed standards. But Paul says… There's no place in the church for these divisive attitudes. They don't reflect spiritual maturity, but the sinful nature. These are the works of the flesh, the works of the sinful nature. Paul's fourth group of sins then, uh, verse 21, are sins of excess. Sins of excess, he says, drunkenness, orgies. And here Paul condemns drinking, really, to excess. And orgies here is not only the kind of sexual connotations that we might have with it today, but also the idea of excessive eating, excessive feasting and drinking. We would probably call it today the, the kind of a party-going lifestyle. I think in a previous generation of Christians, these things were, were frowned upon. But today, they're often acceptable amongst Christians. But Paul says these things have no place in the Christian life. They're not expressions of Christian maturity, as some people seem to think. They're expressions of the sinful nature. Now, as we noted, Paul says at the end of this list, and the like. His list is not exclusive. His list is not exhaustive. Rather, it's an invitation to us not only to avoid these things, but to think these things through ask ourselves about certain lifestyles and certain behaviors and say to ourselves, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious that these things are incompatible with the Christian faith? And this is more difficult than than you might imagine, because the old sinful nature is there. Although its rule in our lives has ended, it is still there. And if we permit it, it will completely distort our thinking. It will lead us into justifying to ourselves all kinds of of sinful behavior. It may even lead us to make a virtue out of sin, and we become like the the people in Isaiah's day where we call good evil and evil, evil good. And so Paul is calling us here to some hard thinking about our lives. Hard thinking about our attitudes and our behavior and what governs our hearts. And he does so with a warning in verse 21 I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what does Paul mean by, by issuing this, this warning? Well, I think we should notice two things here. The first is, although it's not evident in our English translations, the phrase Paul uses, those who live like this, might be more accurately translated as those who habitually live like this, or those who go on living like this. Paul's not saying a Christian will never, ever do any of these things. He's not saying that a Christian may not lapse and fall into sin but rather his warning is against those for whom such things simply form part of their habitual lifestyle. They they go on living as if they weren't Christians, as if they were still governed by the old sinful nature. The second thing he writes, of course, is that those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. The phrase, the kingdom of God, is not a term that Paul uses very often, and when he does, he uses it to refer to the moral nature of the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of God is a place where sinfulness and immorality are excluded. So bearing this in mind, Paul's saying that the person who lives a life of habitual godlessness they have no place in God's eternal kingdom, because he's saying they're showing by their behavior they don't belong there. They don't belong there. They're showing by their behavior that they have not entered. The kingdom of God now. They're showing that by their behavior that Jesus does not rule in their lives. They're showing that they're not controlled by the Holy Spirit. So, Paul's warning here is not against Christians who will fall into sin, but against those who exhibit by their lifestyle that they were never Christians in the first place, that they've no place amongst God's people, that they're not led by the Spirit. They show by their lives that they've never embraced the gospel of grace, that they've never been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is, however, hopeful of better things amongst the Galatians, as he points out. For we see a second list then in verses 22 and 23, where he speaks of bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Now, again, we should notice Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, and when he does, so, the word fruit is singular, is singular. So, while there are many works of the sinful nature, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. Uh, So, we have a list here where these items are not disconnected from each other. So, we're better not to think of the fruit that he speaks of as a kind of a basket of fruit. You know, somebody brings you a basket of fruit in your hospital or something, you've your oranges, your apples, your bananas, etc. But we're better to think of a fruit here as something like an orange, something that's composed of segments. One fruit, but composed of individual segments. And again, we're reminded in that of the, the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of order, and as He works in our lives, He works to restore our broken lives. He works in us in a holistic way. While sin and wickedness fragment a person, the Holy Spirit restores our integrity. He transforms our entire character. The person whose joy is the fruit of the Spirit will also be the person who exhibits goodness and gentleness. The person of faithfulness will also exhibit love and kindness. The fruit of the Spirit is part of a work of total transformation as the Holy Spirit renovates our entire life and brings us with ever-increasing conformity into the image and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, as we look at this list, the list, again, initially, I think, appears to be a a bit random. Uh, But again, we can see uh, these qualities form three groups of three, three groups of three. And here, the first of all, we see in verse 22, fruit directed towards God fruit directed towards God, love, joy, and peace. Here's a great triad of of Christian virtues, and they're primarily, though not exclusively, directed towards God. For the Christian, their greatest and their deepest love is for God Himself. They have a deep sense of God's love to them, and, and they respond with love towards the God who has first loved them. But then the fruit of the Spirit is also joy. For the Christian who has come to know the love of God, then that joy overflows from knowing Him, and this is the deepest joy of the Christian's life. There is a joy and a delight in God that transcends the trials and the afflictions of this world. There is a joy in the heart of the Christian that nothing can ultimately extinguish. Indeed, it is a joy that transcends all earthly joys then the Christian also finds that they enjoy the deepest peace in their life, because this is a peace that flows from their relationship with God. The Christian recognizes we're no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer living our lives in rebellion against His rule, but we are at peace with God. We are at peace with God. We've been been reconciled to Him, and indeed, we've been received into His family. And so, there is, for the Christian, a deep sense of peace that overflows into our lives, even amidst the stresses and the strains and the trials and the struggles of this earthly existence. Secondly, then, we see in verse 22, fruit directed towards others. Patience, kindness, goodness. For the person who has come to know God and whose life is now controlled by the Spirit, their relationships with others, and especially those who belong to the family of faith, these relationships are transformed. And their lives bear the fruit of patience, of long-suffering, of bearing with one another. What a world really is contained in that word, Patience patience, especially when directed towards other people. It's learning to to bear with one another in weakness. Learning to bear with one another in failure, in our lapses, means forgiving one another. It means serving one another with humility, patience. And then there's Kindness. What's kindness? Well, kindness is the is practical expression of Christian love. The Christian knows the love of God, and they in turn love God. And that love that they experience, have experienced from God, then overflows into the way in which we, we treat other people. We, where we long to express to others the, the love of God that fills our hearts and our lives. And how do we do that? We, we exhibit kindness. We show kindness to others. Kindness, the practical expression of Christian love. And then there's goodness. Goodness is that behavior towards others that goes beyond mere responsibility. Goodness doesn't ask, well, is this my responsibility? But with generosity of spirit asks, well, how can I help? How can I help? Because I long to do you good. Good. All of these qualities, patience, kindness, goodness, speak of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives because they all demonstrate how God has treated us, that He is patient, that He is kind, that He is good. And so, as the Spirit works in us, we find that longing, that desire to to treat others as God has in Christ treated us. The third little group then is fruit directed inwardly, verse 22 and 23. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. It's not only our attitude towards God and others that matters, but how we conduct ourselves. Christians are people of quiet inner strength. And that is something that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Faithfulness is a quality that's little recognized today or or little sought. And yet it is a fruit of the indwelling Spirit of God who is faithful to us. Christians are people who are reliable, people who are dependable, people who are committed. Whatever they say they will do, they will do. Whatever they find to do, they will do it with all their might and they will stick at it. They will work at relationships with others through thick and thin. And there's gentleness. John Stott describes this as that humble meekness which Christ exhibited. Gentleness. To be like Christ is to exhibit gentleness, tenderness, mercy to others, especially in their weakness. It is to forgive those who wrong us, it is to speak to others with with tenderness. So, that what was said of Christ might be said of us. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. And finally, then, there is self control or, or self mastery. The person who bears the fruit of the Spirit controls their sinful appetites, their desires, their, their passions. They don't give free rein to them, they, they, they don't indulge them. The tongue is brought under control. Anger is subdued, lust is mastered, envy is slain, and and so we could go on. The person who is self-controlled knows themselves. They know their heart, they know their weaknesses, and they're learning to bring these things under control through the indwelling strength of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, these things are the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In verse 23, he adds, against such things there is no law. They need no law to discourage or to restrain such beautiful qualities. Now, at this point uh, in the sermon, uh, if you're a Christian and you've read through these two lists with me, you might feel exhausted. Uh, you might feel a bit deflated, uh, having read through uh, all of this as you survey the list. Uh, certainly, I feel like that whenever I read these, these these lists. And you may well feel that some of these things are as far from describing you uh, today as is possible. Well, if you feel like that this morning, let me say that's not all bad news. That's not all bad news. For the first thing I think we need to recognize is that Paul doesn't give us this list so that we can tick these items off and, uh, and congratulate ourselves. Yeah, uh, You know, I've, I've mastered patience. Uh, I've, I've self-control all sorted out. You know, I have no problem with, with sin in my, in my life. Instead, reading through this list reminds us of how far far short we fall of what a Christian ought to be. It reminds us, doesn't it, of the great conflict that goes on between the the new spiritual nature and the old sinful nature, so that we say, well, I don't do what I want to do. And said, time and time again, I often find myself falling into sin. But when we feel like that, where does that drive us? Where does that drive us? Well, it drives us once again to the cross of Christ. It drives us once again to the cross of Christ where we receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. In other words, this list highlights for us the grandeur of the gospel of grace. As Christians, we are utterly dependent upon the grace of God for our salvation. If it were not for the grace of God this morning, who amongst us here could stand? If this was a list of things that we must do… Or we'll all be lost. That would be an absolute tragedy. But this list doesn't teach us about Christian perfection. It does teach us about Christian realism. It reminds us that we all have a long way to go. Whoever we are this morning, whoever we are, we all have a long way to go. And we need to be realistic about that. It should drive us back time and time again to the grace of God. Uh, Man said he had heard that famous definition of evangelism that you've you've perhaps heard. He said that uh, evangelism, as he had learned, was one beggar teaching another beggar where to find bread. He said he'd grown up with that. Explanation. He thought about it often. He said, until one day I realized that I had become an ex-beggar, telling others where to find bread. But the sinfulness in our lives, the struggles that we have, drive us back time and time again to the grace of God, to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, to our need for grace. But secondly, we must also see that Paul describes this list as the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it is the work of the Spirit to produce this fruit in our lives. In other words, Paul's not saying to us this morning, you must do your best to, to do each of these things. You must do your best to live up to each of these standards. Not all. He's saying if the Spirit is at work in your life, then your life will bear this fruit. That is the Spirit's work. He will bear this fruit in the same way as an apple tree bears apples. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're totally reliant again upon the grace of God. We're totally reliant upon the grace of God to bear this fruit in our lives. Paul's not saying to us this morning, here, you need to work harder. He's calling us to recognize that this is the Spirit's work. And as he writes to the Philippians, we must remember that he who has begun a good work on our lives, he will bring it to completion. And so this morning, we read through a list like this and we kind of sag a little bit. But we mustn't despair of ourselves because in faith we mustn't rely on ourselves, but upon the powerful and effective work of the Holy Spirit, we must recognize that God is not finished with us yet. God has not finished with us yet. Well, does that mean we do nothing? Not at all. Instead, Paul tells us that we must now live by the Spirit, and we must learn to follow the Spirit, and indeed keep in step with the Spirit. We need to get our lives in tune with the operation of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit— and that involves for each one of us an ongoing struggle to overcome the old sinful nature in its appetites and in its operations. And as we do so, the Spirit works, changes us, transforms us, bringing us into the image and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this struggle, we return again and again to the cross. In this struggle, we again stand amazed at the grace of God. For weak and sinful failures like us. That God is gracious. God is forgiving. God is patient. God is kind. God is good. As he continues that great work of renovation in our lives until we shall be like Jesus. In the meantime, we we marvel. Like old John Newton, that famous author of amazing grace, whenever he said these words. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was. And I can hardly join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. May God bless his word to our hearts this morning. In a moment or two, we're going to meet around the Lord's table. And again, our hearts return to Calvary. Again, we remember God's great love for us, the incalculable gift of his son, the righteousness that we receive through him, the new life that we receive through him. As we approach that table, we once again confess our sins confess our utter reliance upon God and give thanks that as we eat this bread and drink this wine together, it is until he comes, until he comes and takes us home, that we will be with him forever. And we will see Jesus because we will be made like him. Before we do that, we're going to uh, sing uh, once more as we approach uh, the Lord's table and uh, hand over uh, to our uh, musicians to lead us.